Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, on Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. In this limited series, I have been reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders, entrepreneurs, and practitioners, asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? Our focus in this interview is on one of the most critical behind-the-scenes issues that has emerged during this pandemic. It's not a new issue, but it's incredibly timely, and its importance has been magnified by the current crisis. It's also an issue that will be a high priority for months, if not years, to come in the wake of the pandemic. The issue is provider resilience. For those of you who are providers or who work closely with providers, you'll immediately understand the implications. And I think you'll find our guest perspective refreshing, helpful, and hopeful. For those of you who are not as familiar with this issue, you're in for a treat because you're about to hear from one of the leading experts in the field. Our guest this week is Wayne Sotil. He's an international thought leader on resilience and work-life balance, particularly for health professionals. He has published widely in peer-reviewed medical journals and has authored nine books, including his latest two, The Thriving Physician, How to Avoid Burnout by Choosing Resilience Throughout Your Medical Career, and Thriving in Healthcare, A Positive Approach to Reclaim Balance and Avoid Burnout in Your Busy Life. Dr. Sotil has delivered more than 9,000 talks and workshops and is a highly sought-after keynote presenter. I have to tell you, I've had the pleasure of hearing Wayne speak numerous times. He is an incredibly gifted speaker and storyteller who combines the state-of-the-art science with warm, humorous examples and down-to-earth practical advice. Wayne is also the founder of the Sotil Center for Resilience and the Center for Physician Resilience in Davidson, North Carolina. In this interview, we are going to be benefiting from Wayne's 40 years of experience in the field of resilience in hearing how he is now applying all of that expertise and wisdom to provide a resilience during the pandemic. So without further ado, let's drop into the interview I recorded just a week ago with Wayne Sotil. Wayne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I know you have been beyond busy and I've seen some of your work recently. It's so important. So I just want to thank you for joining us on this podcast interview today. Thank you, Zev. I admire what you're doing tremendously and I admire you, as you know. I'm your biggest fan. Thanks, <laughs> Wayne. Can I call you every morning, Wayne? <laughs> one, of the, one of the smartest people I know who's been trying to reframe healthcare for a long time. Finally, you've gotten some uh, worldwide attention. Well, well deserved. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad this is being recorded. I'll, I'll play this to my <laughs> wife and kids. Talk about resilience and uh, self-perspective. So thank you for the compliments, but, but you truly are a, a world-class thinker and thought leader in the area of, of burnout and resilience. And if you could just say a few words about your career, because this is not a new topic for you by any means. Yeah. Thank you for that compliment, Jeff. I have been focused on 
trying to learn about studying, coaching, counseling, uh, writing about, teaching about resilience for physicians, medical families, and medical organizations for the duration of my career, over 40 years now. And thankfully, the conspiracy of silence, so-called many, many years ago by Dr. Jack McHugh from Cleveland Clinic, uh, has ended. We can hardly get through a conversation in healthcare without talking about burnout and related issues. I only half ingest actually quite seriously. Uh, my kind of platform now is I've spent the first 40 years of my career helping create a couple of concepts that I'm going to spend the remainder of my career trying to help cor uh, correct. Hmm. Because we've, we've created uh, two issues that uh, chronically simmer in the psychosocial underbelly of not only physicians and medical families of various sorts, but also anybody working in healthcare and it's expanding kind of throughout industries now. There's two concepts are the mythical balanced life, which has created new age guilt because all of us are falling short and always will fall short. And then secondly, burnout hysteria. We have misrepresented the concept and it is certainly being misconstrued to create chronic ambivalence about working. Now, along comes COVID-19 and all the pandemonium we're experiencing. And interestingly, it, in my world, what's happening in the psychosocial underbelly real time in health organizations across the country and for health professionals across professions is a reexamination of those two very issues that, that I spend my life focused on. Mm -hmm. Exactly what is balance and what is this burnout business all about? You've not only been a practitioner in this field for decades and a, a public speaker and a consultant, you're also a researcher and have published with some of the best in the field on this topic. So this is an area you know deeply in many, many ways. How do you see the current uh, COVID pandemic in terms of impacting this. It, it seems to me that the situation, as with many other aspects of healthcare, these situations were already here. They were already present. They were already quite prevalent. And the current pandemic has not caused them or created them. It's just exposed them, magnified them, exacerbated them, potentially accelerated some of these issues. But you have a very, very different take on it. So I'm curious yeah. as to these two points about the balanced life and the burnout. Okay. So I got a head full and a heart full of this stuff. Uh, <laughs> thoughts and, and uh, thought out opinions and passionate uh, opinions also. Mm -hmm. So please uh, steer me however you want to steer me, uh, Zeb. First of all, my impressions and experiences are born of, of um, my, my thoughts about this are born of these, these experiences. We've had over 13,000 physicians and or uh, physician life mates come through our services at the Center for Physician Resilience in Davidson, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. used to be in Winston-Salem. Um, so that's been an incredible learning lab for us. Physicians come from around the country for intensives for personal growth. Secondly, I consulted with a number of health systems for the past 20 years. And as you mentioned, I speak at conferences throughout. Here's what we know in, from our research, that contrary to the hyperbole that I have helped create, I don't mean this to sound cynical. I think it's a good thing that we have broken into discussing matters of well-being. 
But contrary to the notion that one in two physicians is burned out, the truth is that the more thoughtful analyses suggest that the percentage of physicians or other providers, health professionals of various sorts, who have chronic burnout or full-blown burnout is more like 15 to 20%. It's probably true that 30 to 50% of physicians go through periods of burnout but then recover, or nurses or advanced care practitioners. Similarly, we're getting hyperbolic about the moral distress notion. I am all about let's not have people work in circumstances that, that damage their hearts and souls. But it's not true that every warrior who uh, went to war comes out with chronic moral distress. That's no more true than is it true that every practitioner working in an under-resourced setting experiences chronic moral distress. Two things are true. I doubt that you can find any health professional who doesn't go through periods of burnout, but most cycle through them in and out. I doubt that you find anyone working in healthcare who doesn't go through periods of moral distress. That doesn't mean people are chronically morally distressed. Mm -hmm. So this gets to the field of resilience. Most people who go through difficult times come out stronger having experienced those times. That's mm -hmm. a fact born from 70 plus years collectively in the field of resilience, who goes as an individual, as a couple, as a family, who gets through, or as a health system or a medical group practice, who gets through hard times, comes out stronger, having gone through those hard times. That's this concept, and thanks for bringing this up, this post-traumatic growth. Is, did I get it right? Yeah, yeah. first cousin to the resilience research. I think that what's happening yeah. real time is yeah. fascinating. First of all, my heart goes out to everybody dealing with everything these days. I mean, if if you're not to your knees with compassion and empathy mm. and concern for uh, friends, neighbors, colleagues in the world, you're a sociopath. And I don't mean mm. to sound glib or overly mm. academic about this, but we were experiencing this paradoxical time. At the most complex of times, the call should be issued to let's draw back and pay attention to the fundamentals. This is what we do with our patients. We give them diagnoses of chronic disease that turn their lives upside down, and then we help them cope by helping them pay attention. Now more than ever, it's important. Pay attention to the fundamentals of mind, body, spiritual relationship, health. Now, what's happening in the trenches, in my experience, right mm -hmm. now, real time, mm -hmm. is a combination of intuitive and counterintuitive processes relative to how are people doing psychosocially. On the intuitive side, most people are responding to the call to battle, right? It's time to put aside minor obsessions in some instances, chronic interpersonal conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, in other instances, festering dissatisfaction with the health system in which I'm working. It's time to put all that aside in rock and roll because a crisis mm -hmm. has happened. I've mm -hmm. seen this happen time and time again, consulting with health organizations. For example, nurses are battling each other or administrators and physicians are battling each other. And then the battle cry comes out, joint commission is coming tomorrow. It's time to stop all this BS and let's go. And it's amazing how people can come together and collaborate and with grace and, mm -hmm. and generosity, mm -hmm. find a way to smooth it all over, you know, in, until joint commission leaves. And then we go back to fighting our petty battles. Well, right now, 
people responding to the call to battle. However, four, six, eight weeks into this, we're easing into an awareness of it, we got to, it's the slow drone of figuring out the new normal mm-hmm. and uh, what are we going to do as we move forward. Now, some predictable things, intuitive things happen, which is crisis is difficult and already stressed and strained people in teams and marriages uh, fall apart. And in some instances, that's COVID-19 crisis is the proverbial last straw that's uh, breaking folks who were were compromising their functioning and breaking relationships or teams that were compromising their functioning. I think, interestingly, as we move beyond this, we sort of, have, you know, the crisis puts us at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. We're struggling for survival. But as we we move past worrying about uh, life and death, just as is the case with our patients with chronic disease, people become concerned about quality of life. And then it gets much more nuanced. Mm-hmm. And this is multifactorial. Many of these things, many factors apply. Some contradict, but don't cancel. Some people are going to emerge from this with full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. However, I don't mean what I'm getting ready to say to in any way sounds cynical. It's important for us to, to learn from research on this. The best predictor of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is neither severity of stress or atrociousness of the trauma, exposure, proximity, any of those things, even though the most hardy of people will get symptomatic, some facing some of the stuff people are facing in, in the trenches of healthcare. The best predictor of who's going to have long-term PTSD is neuroticism. People who worry about a lot of things over a long period of time are going to continue to worry about a lot of things over a long period of time. I emphasize, I'm not being cynical. Mm -hmm. The people who are going to emerge most compromised in their functioning are the people who have always been compromised in their functioning. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. the post-trauma growth syndrome, uh, Mm -hmm. popularized by Calhoun and Tadici, is really worth taking uh, hope from the the majority, their research and others suggest that if you study cohorts, the majority of people who go through traumatic times emerge with new perspectives, with a renewed sense of pride of survivorship, with a, a broadened and deepened appreciation of the people around them and the possibilities that come with every day of life. Uh, they they experience kind of a spiritual renewal or awakening in some instances. Not I don't mean religious. I I mean uh, mm-hmm. more existential, philosophical. And I'm seeing that happening too uh, with with people who have had uh, chronic struggles with their own organizations, their teams. Mm-hmm. People who have grown uh, worn down by the new age guilt and the uh, burnout hysteria that has resulted uh, in ambivalence. Mm-hmm. about their careers, I'm seeing a bimodal distribution. Either people are saying, see, I knew this career was going to kill me, and now it literally might kill me and my family, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be bitter and hostile and cynical about it mm-hmm. in the wake of COVID-19. On the other hand, people are rethinking, reframing, to use your great term, uh, their perspectives on themselves, their families, the teams in which they work, and the organizations in which they work. I want to come back to that in a second, exactly where you just left off. I've been taking notes furiously as you're speaking. What I hear you saying from the beginning of this conversation is that 
you want to sort of clear the cobwebs about some of the beliefs we have and sort of the memes out there and the what we believe to be true about this whole notion of the the extreme prevalence of burnout this what you call the mythical new age sense of you know we all should have a balanced life and if we don't have it uh, there's something wrong with us and what i hear you saying is let's get rid of that it's not true not nearly to the extent we think it is and let's reframe this with the data that we know and the reality and talk about the the fact which is yes some people in previous times as well as the current crisis will have post-traumatic stress some will have this moral dilemma that i've seen a lot of in the last few months speaking of providers and again picking that up from the military but there's also like you say a bimodal curve where there's going to be folks on the other side of that coin that'll have just extreme growth under duress and then a whole bunch of folks in the middle where you know there is good and bad and that's normal I hear you really reframing your field. Totally reframing my career. Uh, <laughs> uh, in my career reflects the field. Zev, in, I want to be clear about it. The, the punchline is this. Okay. When we talk about burnout, when we talk about moral distress, mm-hmm. when we talk about work, family, juggling, guilt, we're not get, dispensing diagnoses of chronic diseases. And that is what the current mentality would suggest. Mm -hmm. Burnout is a chronic condition in healthcare. No, it's not. Christina Maslach, who invented the Maslach Burnout Inventory, the gold standard that all of us have used in over 10,000 publications on burnout, implores us. You're misusing the tool and you're misusing the construct. Her research suggests if you keep taking burnout assessments of of your medical staff, for example, you're going to always get a 30 to 40 to 50% hit rate on one of the dimensions, but it's not the same people all the time. Mm-hmm. The percentage of physicians who have the full Monty, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a diminished sense of personal accomplishment is about 22%, according to Christina Maslach. A recent meta-analysis of the surgical data suggested that the percentage of surgeons who have full-blown burnout syndrome is about... 16 or 13 to 16 percent. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay attention to it. It, You know, if it's my turn in the tank, the likelihood that you're going to get through a year without some moral distress, some burnout, some work family, oh, I wish I'd been at my kid's ball game, uh, uh, but I wasn't kind of guilt. Of course, you're going to experience that. And the great news of the work of many of us over the past 20, 30, 40 years is we've broken through the denial. We need to stop collectively breaking our necks in healthcare, pretending that the the incredibly heroic work that health professionals do doesn't take a toll. Yes, it takes a toll. It takes a moral toll. It takes a family toll. It takes an individual toll. But now let's calm the hell down. These are serious times we're facing. And it's seriously time for us to rethink and reframe what we're doing. Now, we want them to rethink it. You know, the regulators, the, you know, my setup when I speak, you've heard me speak before, is even if they are 90% of the problem, whoever they are, your loved ones, your colleagues, your organization, your healthcare leaders, your, you know, our politics, even if they are 90% of the problem, what 10% are you willing to own? It might plead to people. Is part of your 10% is rethink and reframe your engagement in your work. Our research over the past 25 years has shown clearly working less 
solves no work-life issues and it solves no burnout issues for health professionals. You can work half-time in a job you're not passionately engaged in. It's going to solve none of your work-life issues. It's going to solve none of your burnout issues because the bane to thriving or resilience is ambivalence. You know, any of you been through a divorce know what I'm talking about. Or anybody been married more than a minute knows what I'm talking about. Right. You know, the bloom of infatuation goes away. And then we get this old crap feeling. Uh, I, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll join the club. That means you married more than a minute. Mm-hmm. And how you deal with that ambivalence, uh, once you realize this is not perfect, is going to determine whether you're going to engage in a way that keeps generating the resilience-producing byproducts, or you're going to hold back in ambivalence. And what's going to be kicked off is poison in the in the resilience garden. Nationally, we've got people holding back. We're waiting for a reinvention of the medical workplace to make it a more doable place to work. Mm-hmm. And and just to you know, these are complicated issues. I wish I could make it sound simple, but. You know, anybody's making it sounding simple, you know, read two books and thinks they know something. Mm-hmm. In 2000, we wrote about my wife and I, Mary and I wrote about, you want to know what it's like to work in healthcare? Imagine the most uh, traffic congested intersection in the least regulated traffic flow city in the world. What physicians do all day, every day is stand in the middle of that intersection, dodging traffic for a living. And then, of course, they get smashed to smithereens routinely by some speeding vehicle. And someone refers them or they self-refer to us with a request, teach them how to bleed less. Bleeding less is not what resilience is. And that's what the cynics are going to town with saying, oh, you're blaming the victim, saying teaching them resilience skills is going to solve it. Hell no, it's not going to solve it. Nobody's that much of an idiot. To think that if I teach you to bleed, let somebody's got to redirect the damn traffic. Right. We got to reinvent healthcare. We got to reframe how we're doing things. And guess what? It can be the most smoothly flowing workplace in the world. If you're ambivalent, you're gonna burn out, mm-hmm. and you're gonna be in a lousy mood when you go home because you didn't enjoy your work. And then you're gonna spread that at home. The biggest predictor of dissatisfaction in family life for health professionals has nothing to do with work short of working 90 hours a week. It has to, it doesn't have to do with how much you work. It has to do with whether you enjoyed your work because it has to do with your mood when you come home from work. So you're talking about your own reframe of your field yeah. and that's happening in real time. And, you know, in part, again, catalyzed by the COVID pandemic, it's just, it's brought it to a point where it's just, okay, enough is enough. We got to really look at reality and understand it and get rid of our misconceptions of the past, you're reframing and you're bringing that to your clients and, and to the field and your career. What are the implications for providers uh, in terms of reframing how they think about their world, their work, and how about the reframing for leaders who yeah. are responsible for creating the environment? I think for, for providers, we're again getting sort of a bimodal uh, uh, distribution with two humps and a lot of folks in the in between. But on the one hand, it is I've been chronically ambivalent about this profession, and I go back to what I've seen and, and heard. I signed on to take care of people. I didn't sign on to die, uh, nor to uh, kill my own family with uh, coronavirus. Now, 
On the other hump are people who are reframing in this way. Sometimes for the sake of the frustrations I experience at work, I've lost my wonderment. That's my favorite word in the English language. You've heard me say this before. Wonderment is seeing the familiar in unfamiliar ways. And in the midst of this pandemic, I am with wonderment noticing the heroism of my colleagues in the, in the bravery of patients and families. And with wonderment, I am realizing how proud I am to be a, a member of the one profession that doesn't run for the hills during pandemics, history suggests. From the flu epidemic in the 20s to right now, it's health professionals like me. And so there's a pride of, of affiliation, of organizational identification that's resurging. That is really, really powerful in, in getting people through uh, difficult times. And I hope will will linger. Our culture is renewing its pride and admiration of the heroes that are health professionals and all over the place. People are, you know, staging rallies and applauding from a distance as the shifts change. That's sinking in for a lot of people. A lot of people that I am coaching and counseling and in our, that my group is are talking about, you know, I regret that I wasted the last 10 years being pissed off about my profession. I mm. forgot to appreciate on our worst days, we work in miracle zones. We don't have everything we need. We don't not resource like we want, but on our worst days compared to a lot of places, the people who, who first taught me that perspective were physicians who returned from medical missions trips. They come back in wonderment. Mm. They leave complaining the day of the flight uh, to wherever they're going to do medical missions. They're complaining about what they didn't have in the OR the, or the procedure rooms. They come back saying, I've, I've been doing surgery in a tent with flies and a hammer and a chisel. Compared to that, I need to celebrate what's right about where I am. So one thing we've got going on, we got some people uh, responding to the stress of the moment with, that's it, last straw. I'm going to forever be bitter and cynical if not exited. I'll get to leadership in a minute. On the other hand, we've got people who are rethinking, reframing, and finding renewal of their passion for and commitment to their profession. And that's from the front office staff to the transporters, to the physicians, to the nurses, and all around, all around the table. I'm seeing that, that kind of bimodality. Mm-hmm. Now, leaders are yet another interesting study, I think. Warren Buffett's a great notion that, you know, when the tide recedes, you find out who's been swimming naked. We have settled for mediocrity. One reason I'm your biggest fan, Zev, is I believe that, that you eloquently and intelligently make the point we have normalized mediocrity in healthcare, and we've done it for decades. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we justify our existences. Uh, comparing ourselves to the half-assed hospital up the street and we're doing better than they are or benchmarking against ourselves. Well, there are a number of cohorts that have needed to grow extinct. And I think in, in healthcare, and I think that our current crisis is going to call more and more of them. And no one's immune here. So for decades, we've tolerated physicians behaving badly. And I work with thousands of them. Hmm. Um, these days, here's the new news. I'm a physician advocate. I never advocate against a physician. 
I personally know more physicians who've gotten fired from their jobs in the last five years than in the preceding 37 years combined. I've reviewed our records. Wow. Why? Because people don't tolerate people behaving badly in the workplace. It started with physicians. Second group that needs to be uh, grown extinct, passive-aggressive nurses or under-functioning nurses. I experienced this hundreds of times when doing culture assessments or consults for health systems called there because of the disruptive behavior of Dr. X, Y, and Z. I hear from the nurses, I'm glad you're dealing with Dr. X, Y, or Z. They act like knuckleheads sometimes and they make us anxious. But while you're at it, why don't you deal with uh, these nursing colleagues of ours who show up bitter and hateful and backbiting every day? At least Dr. X just acts like an idiot every now and then. My colleague Susie Q or John Doe over here, the, the, you know, the American Nurses Association says the biggest threat to collaboration collegiality for nursing is lateral violence. It's nurses treating nurses poorly. Hmm. A third cohort that needs to grow extinct are half-assed leaders who have gotten Peter Principle and are glutting the healthcare system year after year, not getting things done. Well, the tide has receded in who's, who's swimming naked. I think that what's going to happen is a needed culling of people who don't show up with fire in their belly and competencies that can make a difference outside of healthcare America the data are, are compelling and inside healthcare America when paying attention to similar data, the workplace emotional culture correlates directly with quality, with safety, and with profitability. The workplaces that have the most positive workplace emotional cultures are the ones that recruit, retain, and rock and roll most effectively. So my so there's a Harvard Business Review article that documented this uh, a couple of years ago. In corporate America, in some cases, in some corporate 50 companies, they added just get in a good mood on your way to work and spread it. Hmm. And if you're not in a good mood, by the time you hit the parking lot, go home. Because this is sacred work we're doing here. You know, we're selling insurance. We're making tires. And we hmm. want to do better than the factory up the street. Much less healthcare, for God's sake, where people are scared to death. So I think leaders are rethinking, reframing several things. Number one. We got to pay attention to the well-being of our workforce. And that means we've got to create a manageable workflows and expectations. We've got to move beyond the, the egregious mistake we've made of taking a, an army of intrinsically motivated people and trying to monetize uh, their motivation. A hundred years of motivational psychology research has shown us that that backfires on you. Mm -hmm. We cannot monetize without demoralizing. We've got to find out. Mayo Clinic taught us this decades ago. You got to take money off the table. You got to pay people fairly and not make it a transactional payment. The, nothing demoralizes high-performing people more than an RVU system that is paying you per work unit or a equal pay for unequal performance system. So we got to, I think the leaders are going to get creative about uh, looking at these kinds of factors about motivation. I think mm -hmm. that we're going to get uh, ever more, if my career is any indication, I mean, I'm exploding with 
invitations to do virtual resilience training for folks, I think we'll get serious about it. Mm-hmm. And so I do believe that we can't expect people to do well something we don't train them to do. Mm-hmm. And the smart thing is to start teaching emotional intelligence in kindergarten. That was Daniel Goldman's original intention to revamp the educational system to make learning how to function and cope uh, something that, that becomes part of our culture. The same thing, someone has been preaching this gospel about well-being or wellness or one version or another. My version is resilience. Mm-hmm. For decades, it's been a public health campaign. Well, we've got real mm-hmm. breakthrough now. People are saying, oh, yeah, we need to provide resilience training. And I think that's going to stick as uh, our, our time unfolds. I think the call to higher levels of professionalism are going to stick across the board, across disciplines uh, with providers and even front office staff and other folks, as well as uh, our leaders. At least I hope it does. Wow, that's a fantastic list of refocusing and reframing our world in healthcare. It's interesting you went to the payment model, because I've been thinking about and having conversations about this. And, you know, from a economic or financial perspective, I think what this pandemic has revealed is the vulnerability and fragility of a fee-for-service model, particularly in primary care. And those organizations that were not on a fee-for-service, but in fact were capitated, and where to your point, you took money off the table, you were going to get paid for caring for people, not for dropping codes. You know what, too, Zan, yeah. I was yeah. reading about this uh, this morning, that the estimate is that 50% of primary care practitioners are uh, going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that people can't afford to keep the doors open in primary care, particularly pediatricians, but also small people who are trying to maintain mm-hmm. independence in mm-hmm. primary care of some mm-hmm. sort or another. Mm-hmm. So part of the reframing is going to be, I think we've always known that if you survey young physicians, over 80% say, their idea would be to find an affiliation with a larger organization that will last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I've studied that for decades. And implicit in that is I hope it'll last a lifetime and it will if we have the appropriate dialogue with leaders. This is the change that is happening yeah. across healthcare. Also, leaders are realizing mm. We've got to be wired. We've got to focus on wellness. This is my acronym. We've got to focus on wellness. We've got to inquire from the people that we are leading. What do you need more or less of? We've got mm-hmm. to or, uh, offer recognition. It's amazing. That comes in so many ways. People say, um, I would like, uh, the majority of physicians say, over 80% of physicians say, I would like more regular targeted performance feedback. That's code for, I would like somebody to show up and notice what the hell I'm doing every now and then. Because if they do that, they're going to notice a thousand right things I do for every one wrong thing I do. But Mm -hmm. I open Epic or the electronic health record every morning and it screams at me what I have not done right. And that's the only Mm -hmm. feedback I get today. Other than a grateful patient every now and then with tears in their eyes. Yeah, I, I, I think that. Doctors say pay attention to those right. tears in their eyes because you better you better store up the positives that come from those transactions because you know you get a lot of negatives. So we got to focus on wellness. Leaders do. We have to inquire, and and we've got to recognize the E is for we've got to pr- promote 
uh, efficacy for people. People enjoy doing that which they're good at doing. Mm-hmm. And telling them to do it doesn't make them good at it. We got to train. We got to use our organizational resources to help uh, each other learn how to have crucial conversations, to learn how to manage conflict, to learn how to do team building, to learn how to rethink and reframe so that we maintain uh, energy for what we're doing, to learn uh, resilient skills. And then finally, in the wired acronym is D, we've got to have dialogue. Leaders have to create open forums. An unintended consequence that's coming from all the virtual forums we're having, support group forums, educational forums, is just bringing together multidisciplinary teams. And then people in, in the support sessions that we're doing virtually are talking with each other. They're having dialogue. An unintended consequence of people who went through uh, training, I've noticed this, EPIC training, is they come back saying, we went as a multidisciplinary team to do the training, or we meet once a week, and we're getting to know each other. You know, Mayo Clinic has shown in their research, if you create forums in which uh, health professionals talk about something other than what they want to complain about, it enormously boosts engagement and diminishes burnout, uh, diminishes intention to leave over the next five years. So, I think we've got tremendous opportunity. It's not just opportunity. I think we're, we are reframing how we deal with each other in real time in the, in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, this is so helpful and so brilliant. I, again, I've been taking notes furiously. I love the, the three things you talked about before, the, the well-being, moving away from monetizing motivation, which again speaks to this whole issue of fee-for-service and, and what that does. And as you're pointing out, it has both a psychological vulnerability as well as economic vulnerability. And that was a point that I really didn't, I didn't even think about the psychological vulnerability of that, but you're absolutely right. Um, so much research that supports that, the notion of resilience training. And I, I love your acronym, the WIRED. Yeah, uh, that's my latest thing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a nice roadmap. It reminds us of the things we need to do. And I'll just share, you know, I find the time to be challenging in many ways, and yet so energizing, right? I mean, listening to you and others and, you know, I find myself waking up early in the morning and just lessons that, you know, I'm, I'm learning and it's really an accelerated course. I mean, it feels like an accelerated course. In, I agree with you. I right? agree with you fully. Some of us are energized by change and my subjective experience is multi-layered. I have kind of survivor guilt. I'm not worried about, I, I call it affluent survivor guilt syndrome. I'm not worried about the light bill. Many of my relatives are, you know, losing jobs and worried about paying their bills. Not just, this is it's not abstract with me. Many people I love and know are. Mm-hmm. Some people are excited by change. I am because, oh, let's explore this and let's learn. New. Other people are paralyzed by change. They're terrified mm-hmm. because they were already living. And I say this with a compassionate heart that, God, I can't believe I'm getting by the way I'm getting away with it the way I am. Not that they were doing anything wrong. He said mm-hmm. they have a lifetime of not just not getting picked first on the playground, of never getting picked on the playground. And now they're working for this good organization and they got a regular paycheck and they're, they're proud of their, their, their house and their life. But now their life is turned upside down. They're not excited by this. They're terrified by what's going on. So it's such a, a complex time. But I would use my same wired thing, uh, an acronym for people individually. I was recently asked to do this for, for nurses, speak directly to them. You know, focus on your well-being now. 
when you're scared is the time to really take care of yourself. Be inquisitive, I. You know, the more you learn about this new normal, the less frightening it is. That's what we ask our patients to do. Uh, recognize the people around you and tell them you love them rather than, you know, waiting for, you know, once a year to give them a Hallmark card that says, I don't say it frequently enough, but let me say, you don't, you know, you don't suck too much or whatever, you know, for God's sake, what are we waiting for to recognize what important others do? Develop efficacy. The new normal is here and you, you cope with a lot of stuff in your life that you were awkward at doing at first, but then you got better at it. You can, you can do it. Looking back on all the things you've done and, and endured as an individual, as a couple, as a family, as a team, uh, will give you that pride of survivorship that gives you energy enough to keep coping uh, as you move forward. And then dialogue with the people who are your people. In my lectures, I talk about there, if you want to know the gist of 70 years of research about resilience, here are the three factors. One, energy. Two, attitude. And three, relationships. They are represented by three questions I encourage you to ask yourself regularly and answer honestly. Relative to energy, ask, did I just make a deposit or a withdrawal in my own energy reserves or in the relationships energy reserves, the psychosocial underbelly of this relationship I just had with the, the transaction I just had? Every thought I have, I'm making a deposit or withdrawal. Most of us empty half of our tanks before we get out of bed in the morning with our catastrophizing thinking and so forth. Every transaction I have, I'm either making a deposit or withdrawal. I say, hey, Zev, how are you? How are you kids? How's your beautiful wife of yours? I just made a deposit. Doesn't make us best friends. It just means if down the road I do something to frustrate you, at least we're drawing from a positive energy reserve. Mm -hmm. The second is, what am I thinking? Meaning is the antidote to distress. An articulated vision of a desired future is a pathway to resilience. Every thought I have combines into a matrix that is a philosophy. And I'm encouraging people, choose resilient generating philosophy. Choose the growth mindset. We can grow. It's not a, a fixed a system here. You can change. You have already cope with a lot of stuff. You cope with this. This is going to be a thin page in a long, long book that is a great book, which is the book of your life and your career. We'll get through this. And then finally, the relationship factor. You know, the first is, did I make a deposit or withdrawal relative to energy? Secondly, what am I thinking? And the third, it's a useful thing to periodically just pause, stop, look, and listen in, in, in reaction to your question to a given person. Tell me one thing I could do that'd make your day better. If more of us did those three things, I'd be out of business. I could listen to you for hours and just such practical advice. You've really taken the reframe down to very, very great suggestions and acronyms and, and questions. I know I've benefited from this. I, I have so many more questions to be honest with you, but I, I know our time is up. Wayne would love to reconnect with you maybe in sure, buddy. You know, Anytime. weeks. Okay. This is so great. Can't thank you enough, Wayne. You're welcome, Zeb. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I really appreciate it. I admire what you're doing more than you know. Oh, admire you. you. It means a lot. Thanks, Bye, Wayne. Bye. Okay. So folks, that was an interview I recorded just last week with uh, Dr. Wayne Sotil. I have to tell you that uh, throughout this conversation, I was furiously taking notes as he was sharing his practical advice. And I plan to put some of that into action in my own life and my own career. 
What struck me the most about this interview was how Dr. Satil has reframed his own perspective over the past few months and how he normalizes so much about mental health and resilience and wellness that has been pathologized in the past. He is clearly walking the talk. I also just so deeply admire his humility and his strong sense of empathy for the providers that he's working with. These are unprecedented times, and I truly hope you find valuable information, guidance, and inspiration in listening to these experts and entrepreneurs share how they are adapting to this pandemic in real time and how they're thinking about and planning for the future. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. In these times, especially, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourselves and please share this podcast series with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.